Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is so good to be in your house this morning. To hear the praises of your people honoring your great name is so encouraging. This world is so dark and lost. They are looking for something to save them, and they miss the opportunity of life that you give. As we look around us and see all of the lost and confused people trying to pigeonhole what they want into truth and continually fail, we are encouraged to know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for providing us with clarity in this dark and tumultuous world. We confess, Lord, that even though we have the knowledge of your truth, the old man still tries to pull us back and we look to the ways of the world. Help us, Lord. Keep our focus on yourself and your great and holy name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the other like-minded churches and pastors in the area striving to show the light of your goodness in, the, in this dark world. We thank you for our sister church, Henson Baptist, and their elders for all of their insight and wisdom they have shown us through the years. As they meet this morning, we pray that their body would be encouraged and allow your word to sanctify them today. We thank you for Salem Reformed Baptist and their desire to join the NCN and the mission that we all share to spread your gospel to the communities and the ends of the earth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for our discipleship groups. As we work together through the, through the discipling books, we ask that you would invigorate us with a renewed passion to lead each other in your word. May this effect flow from our groups into marriages as husbands and wives submit themselves unto each other, lovingly discipling each other in your word. May this prod us to be purposeful in setting aside time to do family worship. Ultimately, Lord Jesus, may we be excited to proclaim your goodness to our neighbors and the communities around us. May your name be glorified above all other names. We humbly ask you to be with all the pregnant women in the church today. May you continue to keep the moms healthy and strong as they prepare to give birth to one of your kids. We specifically pray for Samantha Powell as she was headed to the hospital this morning due to contractions. If today is the day that they get to welcome their little one into their family, may you give the doctors an abundance of wisdom as they tend to her and their little one, and we ask that you give Brad an extra amount of compassion to love his wife during the labor process. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this local body of believers that I get to call my family. I thank you for the desire to study your word and to share your gospel with those around them. As we move now into a time of teaching uh, from our brother Nick, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak through him this morning. May we as a body have open ears and hearts to hear what you have to teach us today. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you, Michael. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. It's a joy and a privilege to be able to open up God's word with you all this morning. We will find ourselves in first, or no, I'm sorry, in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there. If you have one of the um, handy little pamphlets that we have with the book and uh, a space for notes, go ahead and turn there uh, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you would have lived in America in the mid-1800s, you would have possibly known family or friends who traveled the Oregon Trail. Now, this is not to be confused with one of my most favorite video games, the Oregon Trail. This is the real, legit thing. The Oregon Trail is an iconic path 
that gave the brave wanderer purpose. If you were disenchanted with your life, up for some free land and the possibility of finding gold, then you would have felt a strong desire to travel the Oregon Trail. In the mid-1800s, between 300 and 500,000 people traveled the 2,100-plus miles out west in hopes of finding a new and better life. Much of the trail was at times a road, but at other times it was just a general direction that people would spread out uh, along the plains in the Midwest so their, their animals could feed and they would continue their journey west to reconvene at a mountain pass. If you, would have, if you have dabbled in the Oregon Trail video game, then you know, like me, that there was all sorts of dangers on this journey. Along the way, there were various trials, uh, broken wagons, rivers, food sh shortages, or illnesses such as cholera and dysentery. Most of the time, your little sister was the one, first one to pass away, if you were like me. Whether the Oregon Trail explorer found themselves on a, a clearly marked trail or a generally uh, direction that they were headed, they all had the same goal. Arrive at the West Coast with the promise of a new and better life. It was purposeful, and the end goal was the same. What united all of these people was this goal. Safe arrival was their hope and their prayer. Now, we no longer have the opportunity to travel in wagons 2,000-plus miles, and we could probably be thankful for that. Yet one of the biggest questions that faces everyone in our world, everyone who is alive, is what direction am I headed? Or, or maybe even more simply, what is my purpose? We know deep down inside of us that we are not purposeless beings, while our lives can feel like much uh, wandering is going on, we know that we ought to be headed in a direction. There is questioning and wondering, where am I going? But no matter what we encounter along this life, sickness, brokenness, or chaos, God has given us a very clear picture of what the purpose of our lives is. There is clear scripture today that we are going to cover in, first, or in Colossians 1, 9-14 that, that tells us what the purpose of our lives is. Colossians was written to a church in modern-day Turkey, and we are in the middle of a prayer that Paul wrote to this church, a church that he had never met. Paul had, had not set foot in this city, and he was preaching to them or teaching them in his letter, but had never preached to them. And their faith was brought through the preaching of another man. And his prayer in these verses is just as applicable to us as it was to that church in Colossae. For we, too, have never met Paul, and our faith comes from another. So Paul's prayer can sink into our lives and impact and, and inform us where we are today. So if you are a note-taker, here is the title or the big idea of this sermon, and it's, it's a tough one. Jesus Christ gives your life purpose. Jesus Christ gives your life purpose. So now let us read 
Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The verses that we covered last week in three, uh, verses 3 through 8 are the first portion of Paul's prayer. And last week's verses were filled with thanksgiving, with Paul thanking the Lord for the work that he had heard he was doing in, Col- in the church in Colossae. This week, Paul is telling the church and he is telling us that what the purpose of the Christian life is, what it it looks like to live a life that demonstrates the salvation that one proclaims. The salvation that one proclaims is what Paul is is telling us. So Paul's request we see in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Any time that we come to a text and we see a transition word at the beginning of our text, we should be familiar with what came before. So Paul was clear in verses 3 through 8 that he thanked God for the life that these believers had in Christ. It is that thankfulness then that presses Paul's prayer forward. And Paul is a grammar master. The first half of the prayer covered last week was one sentence in the Greek. And the text that we have before us this week, depending on your copy of the Greek Bible, runs from verse 9 through verse 20 as one complete Greek sentence. And so we are only going to cover a portion of a sentence this morning. Paul writes that he is constantly praying for these believers. He is constantly in prayer for them. Paul is is praying for them even as he writes this letter. And what we're seeing with this is that when we pray, we teach. Paul is not only praying for them, but he's teaching them. He's teaching the Colossians a lot of things about who God is and who they are, and he's also teaching us So how we pray and what we pray is is not only talking to God, but it's informing others about who we think God is. This is why public prayers are so important. They are multi-purposed. We are leading others in our communication to God, but we are also communicating and teaching others about who God is. So what does Paul pray for? His prayer is that the church in Colossae would be full of the will of God. Full of the will of God. And this filling, this filling up, isn't done through the work of man, but it is done by the work of God. 
In the Greek, uh, the word for being filled is a passive action, indicating that it is God that does the filling. God is filling these people up. It's something from outside of them that is coming into them. This is made more clear in our uh, English versions by the phrase spiritual wisdom. This is not wisdom that we can gain on our, by ourselves, but this is wisdom that only God can give. What Paul desired for the Christians there in first century Turkey was that they would be filled to overflowing with the knowledge of God's will. The knowledge of God's will that, that comes through spiritual wisdom and understanding. A truth much deeper than they could gain for and by themselves. To know God's will then is to truly know God and to have a, God to have a part and a piece of your life. We, we commonly talk about growing in the knowledge of God as an academic pursuit, right? Like, I'm going to go learn about God. This is called theology. Theology, right? You learn something that you learn and you study in Bible college or seminary. But Paul is taking this concept of theology out of school and putting it into the practical. Paul desired that the church, that the people in Colossae would be theologians, good theologians, to know the will of God, or even better yet, to know God means just that, that you know theology. So how, how is this possible? How does one become a theologian, right? Especially if you haven't gone to Bible college or you haven't attended seminary, that word alone can just kind of, yeah, that's not me. But how, is one, how does one become a theologian? Well, the will of God was and is discernible. It can be known. And it is through learning about God that we can then see what it is that he wants for us. For the more you learn about God, or more appropriately, the more he reveals himself to you, the better theologian you become. Paul here in Colossians is connecting the mind with the spiritual growth of a Christian. For Paul, to know God and to know more about God is to become more and more filled with wisdom and understanding of spiritual things. Now this can seem abstract, so let me try to simplify it and, and bring it down a couple of ways. If you want to be better at a sport... You must learn with your head all that you can about that sport. And that knowledge then translates into real life. Or, or what healthy marriage consists of intimacy without knowledge? Knowing your spouse is the foundation of a healthy marriage and healthy intimacy. So therefore, to know God is a good thing, for it draws us to himself, to him, and he draws us to himself. Knowledge of God, then, is something that we all ought to and can participate in. For believe it or not, you, right now, are a theologian. I'm talking about God. You are hearing me talk about God, 
And that means that you are cognitively interacting and making decisions about who God is. You are practicing theology. Knowledge about God, though, is not just gained through listening. It doesn't just stop at the head, right, in the mind. The Greek in our verse indicates that an active work on the part of God is taking place. And that is us and God informing our hearts. In the English, we can see that Paul tells the reader that this is through spiritual wisdom and knowledge. See, one can know about God. One can have all of this head knowledge about who God is, but not truly know him. In fact, Satan and the demons know God, right? They have all of the head knowledge about who God is, but they don't truly know him. One can admit there is a God, but have no wisdom, no spiritual wisdom or knowledge or understanding. And Paul's prayer for the church, his prayer for us, is that we would truly know God. That that we would grow in spiritual wisdom and insight. Now, wisdom has been the pursuit of humanity since the beginning of time. Eve and then Adam wanted to become like God. They wanted to be made wise. And so they ate the fruit. And by Proverbs, we, we see that wisdom is very desirable. It's something that, that we should long for and that the writer of Hebrews pursues and tells us to pursue. Uh, this week, I would encourage you to look at chapter 2 of Proverbs as it describes the beauty of wisdom. But very specifically in verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In this chapter uh, 2 of Proverbs, there are clear benefits to wisdom. But it is God who gives it. It is God that imparts it. Proverbs then ends and leaves us asking, how do we actually get wisdom? God gives it, but what does that look like? Right? We don't have a, a full picture quite yet. It isn't just a head knowledge, but wisdom should sit and reside in our heart. So we get glimpses to the answer, but we aren't fully given it. But by Colossians, and in Colossians, we see this come to fruition. I mean, even if you look at at Colossians uh, verse 28 of chapter 1, wisdom and Christ are tied very tightly together. Paul talks about teaching and proclaiming with all wisdom so that the people of Christ are mature in him. Or in chapter 2, verse 3, where wisdom and knowledge are hidden inside of Jesus Christ. It isn't then in the life of the church, as believers gather and hear God's word proclaimed that the wisdom of God is made known. It is through Jesus Christ that God reveals his will and his plan to us and to the world. It is a wisdom that when God sets it in our hearts, he reveals his will to us. And so no matter who you are, 
the will of God for your life is that you are a theologian, that you know God more and more. Not, not so that you can walk around with a big head and be a know-it-all, right? If you ask me a question about ecclesiology or soteriology, I'll have the answer for you. Now, those are beneficial, but that's not the purpose. No, the purpose is so that you would love and know God better. For knowledge ought to enter our head, knowledge about God should enter our head and inform and change our hearts. The purpose is that your life might display the power of God as your life transforms. That that your life would demonstrate God's ability to change you and to change me from the inside out. In both your heart and and your head would demonstrate that power of God. Paul's prayer for the Colossian church is that they would exemplify this. That it started the day of their salvation and that it would continue on. That even though he had never met them, even though they were not saved by his preaching, even though he was not their pastor, he desired that they would gain wisdom and insight. Our post-enlightenment society tells us that the highest source of truth is feelings. If we don't feel a certain way, then truth must not reside in what I'm hearing. And unfortunately, we in the church have bought into this. We, we want worship services that leave us feeling good. We want, and so churches will use all sorts of tricks to set better moods. When it comes to the sermon, we often just want a pep talk, right? Just give me some keys that will make my marriage better and make my kids happier with me. We listen to Christian radio stations that are positive and leave us feeling good. But Paul's prayer here in Colossians isn't rooted in feeling. Yes, there's emotion and passion and feeling involved, but the root, it's the foundation of it, is not based in feeling. Be filled with the knowledge of God. Know God better. So how can we go about gaining this knowledge? How can we gain uh, our, our understanding of who God is? Well, here's three ideas. And this is by no means exhaustive. It's not even authoritative. It's just Nick. Spend time meditating on God's word. Remember, it's quality over quantity. It isn't how much you can do, but it's internalizing what you do consume. Read a verse a day and meditate on its implications for your life and who God is in that verse. Come to church and listen to the sermon. Engage it intellectually with your head and then ask and listen as the the preacher applies it to your life. How does this change and affect my life today? Get together with others who are wanting and pondering and thinking about the character of God. I know I'm personally willing to meet with any of you to cover a book or a topic about who God is. 
with the intent that that knowledge informs our life. What is the knowledge of the will of God? What is God's will for your life? It's to be made into his image, to be changed. The process of sanctification. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The purpose of your life, the will of God for you, is to make you more and more into God's image. If that is something that you want, one, that's a gift that God has given you, but two, I would challenge you to grow in your knowledge of God. Grow in your understanding of who God is. And this will result in real-world implications, real-world life change. A knowledge of God that is internalized through wisdom and understanding changes how you act. Let's look at verse, uh, or at point two, verses 10 through 12. Paul expects and, and prays for this church that they have forward movement. Let's read 10 through 12. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here in verses 10 through 12, Paul lays out the specifics of what it looks like to live a life filled with the transforming knowledge of God. So what can you expect and pray for that God would do in your life? That's what Paul is telling us here. And his list is not an exhaustive list, but these are foundational truths. Forward movement through the Christian life looks like bearing fruit through good works, being strengthened to endure and giving thanks to God the Father through it all. Paul is praying that we endure this life with patience, giving thanks to God while we are participating in good works. That's what Paul is praying for. That is what Paul is praying that the church in Colossians would know. A professing Christian should measure the genuineness of their faith by whether or not they see this same fruit. For a genuine faith produces fruit. There are no fruitless Christians. If you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should read 10 through 12 and say, are these evident in my life? Can the people around me see these taking place. The will of God for your life doesn't end at salvation. It's not a aha moment where I've, I've arrived. I'm done. No, it's just the beginning. Paul is once again picking up on the creation motif here. Bearing fruit 
is the result of a life that was created. Right? Right back to the garden. Once again, something that is seen throughout the entirety of Scripture. Psalm 92, 12 through 15. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. From the beginning of time, the plan of God was to create man in his own image. And that image was ruined by sin. But by being placed into Christ, Paul is teaching us that we will continue to be made into the image of God as we continue to be built into Christ. So your life as a Christian has a purpose. And that purpose is to bear fruit. Sounds simple, and in one sense it is. When you do this, when your life bears fruit, you are faithfully proclaiming that you truly are a new creation, created after the image of God and in the image of Jesus Christ. God's will for your life is to do good. And what, what, what does this practically look like? looks like being hospitable to people who maybe you aren't naturally inclined to hang out with. To, to open up your home and to invite the strangers in. That this truly demonstrates that God is alive and at work in you. It's hosting a community group twice a month when you're tired and exhausted. Or coming to church regularly and faithfully when it's so much easier to not. It's giving a ride to someone who is in need. It's faithfully delivering meals to those who have, um, are in a tight spot or have had surgery or have, have moved. It's volunteering your time to, pra- to help practically with the needs of the people around you. It might even be sitting next to someone who is overcome by their grief or bearing the burdens of another. At their core, for the Christian, good works are rooted in our new identity. I'm willing to die to myself and to my comfort and act sacrificially. That's what good works are. I'm willing to die to myself and my comfort and live in a way that demonstrates sacrifice. The people of God were always to be about the work of God. They were always to be about the work of God. That's what defined the people of God. They were doing his will. I'm willing to die to myself and my comfort and then act sacrificially. For the people of God in the Old Testament, this looked like serving him in the temple serving him by building the temple, serving the city, serving the people of God. For the New Testament, Paul is telling us that it is our labor that continues to build up the people of God, to build up the church. 
our work is no less important. So as we become more and more faithful theologians, this changes our actions. Our our head begins to inform our heart, and we get caught up in the beauty of what serving actually is. Look at that repeated phrase in verse 10, the knowledge of God feeds the actions of God's people. Our knowledge of God increases as we serve God. So it's circular, right? We, we learn more about who God is and we serve, and by serving, he demonstrates more about who he is, and we serve again. Next, Paul tells the church that he prays that they are strengthened with the power of God to endure with patience. What does he mean by this? Well, the Christian life isn't uh, a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes endurance. It isn't about a, a quickly burning fire that goes out, but a long, slow burn that lasts until God calls you home. The power to endure doesn't come from some internal resolve, a, a fortitude that we, we have for ourselves and, in our, and of ourselves kind of this refuse-to-lose mentality. It isn't a self-willed one foot in front of the other. Now, it might feel like that at times. I'll admit, it does feel like that at times. Enduring trial after trial can be exhausting. But the reality is that it is God who has strengthened us for that trial. Christian, take comfort in that that God has strengthened you for the trial that you are enduring today. It isn't us and and, and our self-will that kind of holds us together and gets through it by power and resolve. No, that it's God. This means that, that as we patiently endure family members who have let us down, friends who have caused hurt, fellow believers who don't meet our expectations, temptations, and a whole host of other struggles that life brings. It is God who by the power, by his power and the power of the Spirit has given us patience and endurance. We'll cover this more later in Colossians chapter 1, specifically in verse 29, where Paul clearly lays out that he is working really hard but it is God's power that works. This is the Christian life in summary. Yes, we endure. Yes, it's one foot in front of the other, it feels like at times, but in reality, it's God who is placing our feet in front of each other. For it is God who works. Us working for fruit, pressing for sanctification, fighting for temptation, patiently enduring while God is working beneath the surface. So while we feel like it is us, we believe we are making progress, but the reality is is that the power of God is monergistically bringing life. It isn't your work plus God's. No, that would limit the power of God. It is all God. This power, this power of God is the same power that created the world and created a new people and ultimately raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that power, Christian, is alive in you. Look at 2 Peter 1, chapter 3. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called to us or called us to his own glory and excellence. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This includes patience and endurance. So when you're feeling impatient, know that God actually has given you patience. When you're feeling worn out, know that God will carry you. Living life this way, especially in the context with other believers, will challenge us. It will grow our patience. Sometimes we can feel used. Sometimes we are, and oftentimes we are worn out. Oftentimes loving others doesn't appear beneficial. But no matter how we feel, Paul in Colossians is clear. We patiently endure because of the power of God. Finally, the third petition that Paul makes here for the church is that they would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them for a share of the inheritance. To these Gentile believers, this was truly good news. They had great reason to be thankful. They, they were now part of the people of God. The, the promise of God that he had given to Abraham, Abraham that the nations of the world would be blessed through him was now seen practically in the lives of these believers. They went from disqualified, you're not in, you're out, to being qualified. From the outside to the inside. Their inheritance was now an eternal inheritance. And God is once again doing the action in this. He did the qualifying. It is God who qualified them. They, they were just recipients of this kind and gracious generosity. This is an instantaneous and eternal reality for all believers. This qualification that, that you now are part of the inheritance isn't something that you work for. You are qualified. Sprinters have to compete to qualify, right? Heat after heat, race after race. Effort is extended. And they hope that their training and preparation pays off in the end. Hopefully I'm better than the person next to me. Not so with the race that we run as believers. We are already qualified based not on our race, but on the race that Jesus Christ faithfully ran. Jesus came, and first, through his victory, you have eternal life. You are qualified for eternity, not because of your efforts to run or endure, but because of Jesus. You have an inheritance that God has given to you in eternity. This may sound simple, like, yeah, I know this. Right? There's a simple truth to the gospel. There's a simple truth to the good news, but we never, ever advance beyond this simplicity. 
And this, this simple truth that as a Christian, you will live eternally with God is reason for thanksgiving. Thankfulness should start and come from this reality. Thankfulness for what God has done through Jesus and is ours. This is what Paul prays for for these believers. That they would be thankful for their inheritance. That they are now qualified to receive. No longer is, are these Gentile Christians on the outside of God's family looking in. But God has caused them to meet all of the requirements for this inheritance. For the Christian, we are no longer enemies. We are no longer strangers. We are now part of God's family. Thanksgiving, then, should be a part of our daily practice, our daily habit. We should thank God for the life that he's given our friends and family members when it's evident. We ought to be continually growing in the thankfulness that we have because of what Christ has done for us. For we have done nothing for our salvation. It is God's work. and He is the one who should receive our gratitude. Christian, is this part of your prayer life? Do Do you regularly thank God for the work that he's doing in you and in others? Or are you only grateful when he gives you what you want? Do people around you recognize you as a thankful person? Thankful for what God has done. Not because life is going as you expected. Not because it's easy. But because you know deep down, God has been good to you in qualifying you for an eternal inheritance. This is at the heart of patiently enduring the hardships of this world. And it is this reality then in the final two verses that Paul goes into on a deeper level. This morning we will cover them. Uh, let's see, uh, verses 13 and 14. Paul prays and that they are and reminds them that they are freed from sin. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Your ultimate purpose is not really about you. It's about God. Paul began in verse 9 with a prayer that the people in Colossae recognize the purpose of their lives And he concludes this section with a foundational truth that underlines his petition. God has a purpose for their lives to do good works, to patiently endure and give thanks because they have been freed from their sin. Look at the language that Paul uses here in these two verses. God has delivered us. He's transferred us, and we have been redeemed. This is the very core of Christianity. At the moment of conversion, we are instantaneously different. We are no longer who we once were. 
we have been changed. Our hearts have been filled with the Spirit, and the power of sin has been broken. There is kingdom language in here also. The the kingdom of darkness is where we once lived. Now we live in the kingdom ruled by Jesus. And this is done through transferring. Where once our master was sin and death, Jesus paid the price for our salvation, and we were then transferred into his kingdom, into his home. Where once all we could do is sin and all we wanted to do was sin, now we have a new master. This conversion, this transferring comes through what Jesus talks about in John 3 as new birth. John, in his uh, dialogue and conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, says this in 3 through 5 of John 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is then through new birth that delivering and transferring and moving from one kingdom to another takes place. Through new birth that, takes, that happens inside of a person. We are now citizens of the kingdom of God. He is our Lord and master. And it is our joy to walk in obedience to his command. It is our joy to do his will. How can you tell if you're truly converted, if you're truly a Christian? You find joy in obeying him. This is the beauty of the whole text. We just finished seeing these, these, these realities in the Christian life these implications of what it means to be a Christian. They are only possible because of what we see in verses 13 and 14. Jesus being our king means that we live under his rule. It is his law that is our guide for this life. Paul tells us what that guide is. And it doesn't need to be more complex than what Paul tells us. We are commanded to live lives that reflect that of the Savior. Like the children of Israel who who were enslaved in Egypt, we are now free from our master of sin. And we can be about proclaiming the goodness of a God who saves. That is our lives, both public and private, that demonstrate this reality. Our salvation, as verse 14 says, is a redemption for our sins have been forgiven. Paul is really driving the point home. He wants the readers to catch what is taking place and has taken place in their lives. These realities mean that our lives are not what they used to be. Because we have been redeemed, our lives are now public reflections to our new king. Do you realize this, Christian? Do you realize, friend, that your life 
reflects your king? Do you realize that you have been rescued from your sin? This is what theology does. It causes us to to know truly what has taken place and how our lives should be impacted. It causes us to know God. And by knowing God, our lives begin to reflect his will. Too often I'm afraid that we have a disdain for theology, that we don't like it, that it intimidates us, or that we just really want something that something else. We forget and we don't ponder the deep truth that we have an inheritance and are truly freed from sin, that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness. And then when we forget those things, we lose practical realities that they come with them. You don't have to do the things you once did. You don't have to be enslaved to sin. You don't have to think the way that you previously thought. No, let the old man die. Let him go away. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 reminds us, gives us more uh, more clear reminder and picture of who we are in Christ. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. As children of the light, we are not enslaved by the darkness. The Bible, page after page, is clear. Jesus Christ has saved you, and you are no longer who you used to be. You are children of a different kingdom with a different king. And Paul is praying that the Colossians would realize this. He's praying that they would know this. And that prayer is for us as well. In this uh, section that we're finishing up, he thanks God for this reality. And then prays that they would understand it more and more. And this is the journey of the Christian life. We never graduate from the simplicity of this reality. We are always understanding more and more what it is that God has done through Christ. This is an ongoing process of knowing more and more about the life of Christ, knowing more and more about who God is. And as you humbly learn, you will desire to live like a child of the King like one who has been given a great inheritance. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the reality, for the truth that we have seen this morning, that you are a God who's given us, through Christ, a reward. Lord, I just pray that our lives, as we... um, step into communion would would be more and more in line with what that looks like. Amen.